Fusion, the international science radio show. We have a bouncer and the doors of perception. The good, the bad, the ugly. It gets pretty exciting. The myths, the truths. Toxicology. Astro seismology. Magnetism. The dark side. Genetically engineered potatoes. Planetoid. Planetoid. I love that word. <laughs> <laughs> Hello and welcome to Diffusion. Sit back and relax while we encrypt weird and wonderful science into your brain. I'm Ian Wolfe. On this edition, Shauna Murray talks about dinoflagellates that cause ciguatera fish poisoning. But first up, here's news of anti-encryption laws being used before they're passed. Encryption allowed. Unarmed people talking to each other about how they're unhappy about climate change and the environment have been arrested on a remote property and given bail conditions that are impossible to obey. They're being charged under new New South Wales government anti-protest laws, despite the fact they were not protesting. The bail directions from the magistrate say the defendant is prohibited from possessing or having access to an encrypted communications device and or possessing an encrypted application, media application. Everything in the modern world uses encryption technology. This means they can't unlock a car, use public transport, make a phone call, access their bank account, buy food or pay rent, let alone access anything online. The magistrate, in their enthusiasm to please the police, has used words in the bail conditions from punishments written into legislation against organised crime that have not yet been passed by the New South Wales Parliament. They were also directed to share all their passwords with police and their laptops and mobile phones until their court appearance. They can't associate with anyone on a list that includes themselves. Blockade Australia has been linked by New South Wales Police to non-violent environmental protests that have blocked ports, roads and railway tracks. In April this year, New South Wales Parliament passed legislation banning protesting on public roads, rail lines, tunnels, bridges and industrial estates with two years in jail and a $22,000 fine. This effectively bans all protests, other than on your own land, because there isn't anywhere else left. Political free speech is the only kind of free speech that courts have determined is protected by the Australian Constitution. In May 2022, members of Blockade Australia organised a gathering of people on their property to talk. People at the camp discovered two armed people in camouflage gear spying on them. These two people refused to identify themselves or speak to them. The people in camouflage ran to an unmarked black car and ran over two of the people on the property. Fortunately, they weren't killed. The people at the camp naturally thought some criminals were assaulting them and committing a hit and run. So they swarmed around the car to stop it and try to identify the people, at least until the police could arrive. The disguised people accelerated the car while people trying to identify them were still on the bonnet and sped away. Shortly after, about a hundred police arrived, including a dog squad, helicopters and armed uniformed officers. They arrested everybody. 
New South Wales Police claim they arrested people both for attacking police officers and to prevent future protests. This is pre-crime at its worst. 40 people were arrested in the raid, only 7 were charged. Four of those charged face 10 years in jail if they're convicted. Those four people are charged with alleged intimidation, assault of a police officer, and a fray for climbing on the car to identify the disguised police. They spent three weeks in jail before being bailed. One man was pulled off the street in Sydney in June for allegedly blocking roads and obstructing traffic for supporting a protest from a car park. Until his trial, he's barred from being in New South Wales, despite the fact that his residence is in New South Wales, and the trial is in New South Wales. He could be arrested for just staying home, so after a police visit, he was forced to move into state, while waiting for his trial. Another person was pulled in by police after he clicked a thumbs up to a Facebook comment shared by friends. The whole point of bail conditions are to make sure you show up to your trial and you don't commit an offence while waiting for trial. If you can't open your car door, can't call someone else to drive you, can't get an Uber or taxi, can't use a bus or train, can't get cash from a bank, can't pay for rent or food, and can't use the internet, all of which use encryption, then you can't appear in court. These laws should never have been passed. You're listening to Ian Wolf on Diffusion Science Radio. Send emails to science at diffusionradio.com. We're brought to you across Australia on the Community Radio Network and podcast over the internet on www.diffusionradio.com. Sigwaterra is on the move. How safe is your seafood? Shauna Murray is a marine biologist at the University of Technology, Sydney, where she's a professor in the Faculty of Science. She researches microalgae that produce toxins that are eaten by fish and could end up on your dinner plate, giving you an illness like Sigwaterra fish poisoning. The toxins don't hurt the fish or the fish that eat the fish, only fish-eating mammals like us. I contracted Sigwaterra from eating seafood on a pizza in Sydney. So I have a personal interest. Shauna's work includes identifying where the poison-producing microorganisms are growing so that fishers can be warned not to take any seafood from those areas and prevent the spread of the illness. We spoke by Zoom, and I began by asking her, what is a dinoflagellate? A dinoflagellate is a small single-celled phytoplankton that is really common in the world's oceans. And they generally have two flagella, so hence the name. They have a, a transverse flagellum, which goes around the cell and then and a longitudinal flagellum, which is what propels them through the water column. They are extremely abundant, so they can be up to sort of 20-30% of the phytoplankton biomass in the ocean at various times, and they can proliferate in huge abundances, and that's something that is called a harmful algal bloom when that occurs. When certain species of dinoflagellate occur in large abundance, ones that produce toxins, which are harmful to humans or to the marine ecosystem. 
but I should probably stress that they are naturally occurring toxins. So this is something that occurs in nature. The nature of the toxins that we're talking about are the kind a kind of similarity would be a plant toxin that's there to deter a herbivore that might come along and munch up the plant. In the same way that plants produce these kinds of uh, compounds, like for example, capsaicin, which is produced in the chili plant and the capsicum plant and things like that to deter fungal species or, or herbivores or other predators in the same way that that happens. Phytoplankton in the world's oceans like dinoflagellates can produce some kinds of toxins that are meant to stop them being eaten. And it's only an unfortunate side effect that when they're there in very, very high abundances, they can also be harmful to other marine life and even to humans if they accumulate in some food. So they're not exactly algae, like microalgae is sometimes how you see them described online, but they're a separate thing altogether, aren't they? Well, algae, it turns out that algae is actually a grab bag term. So people think of algae as a kind of real group of very similar organisms that are all much more similar to each other than they are to any other organism, but actually algae is just a term for the sort of leftover organisms in the on the tree of life that nobody knew where else to put. So yes, some dinoflagellates have chloroplasts and they can photosynthesize and they can contribute to the oxygen in our atmosphere. That certainly happens. And some people call any organism that photosynthesizes in the ocean uh, algae. And uh, you could call them that. And other people call them flagellates because they swim around and not all species have chloroplasts. So some of them actually eat bacteria or eat other phytoplankton in the ocean. So it's really just a term and you can use one or the other. They're interchangeable. Right. Because otherwise it gets confusing. But I suppose it's like um, fish is one of those terms that it's a catch-all rather than one specific type of organism. Well, you mean in the sense that shellfish? Uh... <laughs> <laughs> it's one of those things I, I saw in a biology course somewhere that there was no such thing as a fish, that there's lots of things that look similar and have similar habitats, but they're not that closely related to each other, even though they all yeah, look like, like fish to us. And shellfish and fish. Yes. <laughs> they're all things that swim around in the ocean. <laughs> Some people call them fish, but No. no. <laughs> Yes, it's the same thing. That's right. So we look at something based on its function. So we see something in the ocean with chloroplasts and, oh, it must be algae. But we don't actually know from that whether or not those organisms are very closely related to each other or not. That's right. Right. And these toxins, how do they get into our food supply? So shellfish in particular are filter feeders. So anything that's in the water column will end up in the shellfish. And then other things can come along and eat shellfish. So that way is a fairly clear kind of clear cut route. With the ciguatera toxins, you're, it's a slightly different route. So these are toxins produced by a gene, generally by a genus of dinoflagellates called gambiodiscus. And they are often epiphytic on the surface of macroalgae. 
And then what happens is that herbivorous fish can come along and, and chew on the macroalgae or on some coral rubble and take up the toxins that way. So, and, and it could just be that, and that's the end of the story there. Or it could be even that uh, carnivorous fish come along and feed on those herbivorous fish, and then they also become toxic. So there are a number of different pathways. And even shellfish in the marine food webs, particularly in tropical countries, can also filter feed gambler discus. So, so there are many, many uh, different types of marine life that can have end up with ciguatera toxins through a few different avenues of the marine food web. And cooking the fish doesn't kill the ciguatoxin? No, no. So I think that's the case for almost all marine biotoxins, that heating or cooling doesn't affect the toxin in any major way. So I know that there's ciguatera does happen in Australia. There's cases here and there. And I heard that it reached New South Wales down from Queensland. That's right. So... What we've seen in over the past sort of 50 years is a slow but steady warming in the East Australian current region and a strengthening and acceleration of the East Australian current. So we're talking about the boundary current that goes down the coast of eastern Australia from Queensland and ends up in um, Tasmania, and that current has greatly strengthened. So we've seen now up to around about a, a two degree average temperature increase in at certain regions along the south east Australian coastline and due to those current waters strengthening and, and moving further south than they used to. So we're not 100% sure of the cause and effect here, and that's partly what my research is about. But we have noticed over since 2014, we've had the first large-scale cases of ciguatera in New South Wales from fish caught in New South Wales. And, and the sort of further south that's happened is around about Port Macquarie. And I think we're up to about 25 to 30 cases in New South Wales from fish caught in New South Wales. And in every case, it's been Spanish mackerel. Now, this is a big pelagic migratory fish. And when I say migratory, they, they stay roughly within a region, but they do uh, migrate down the East Australian coast from uh, Queensland. And so you could hypothesise from that that they're picking up their toxins further north somewhere and now we're catching them further south because of what's happened to the East Australian current which would be in line with the tropicalisation of southern east in Australia because of the, those changes to the East Australian current. So it could be that reason. There could also be uh, an effect from just in general from the warming, which is that we could see more gambidiscus, more toxic gambidiscus growing further south. And that could be another reason. And they're picking up more toxin at locations further south. And another possible reason is um, some of those cyclones that we've seen in Queensland over the last 10 years. Each time there's a cyclone, you get some destruction of reef habitat. And then often when reef habitat's destroyed, it gets replaced in the first instance with macroalgae. 
And then you've got more habitat for Gambia discus because that's what it grows on, macroalgae. And we have seen in other countries, like particularly in the Cook Islands, that they have quite a good correlation between reef destruction due to cyclones followed by ciguatera outbreaks. So there could be a number of potential causes, but yes, we have seen a real increase in more southern states in Australia of ciguatera. Are we able to detect ciguatera in the waters or in the fish? Yes, in the fish we can. So this detection is done via a process called liquid chromatography mass spectrometry or LCMS. And to do that, we take a sample of the fish and then we extract the fish tissue and we measure the toxins in an LCMS instrument. So it's very effective. The downsides to it are that it's very time-consuming and expensive because of that, the expensive equipment and the amount of time just to do a simple extraction of the tissue because what we're trying to do is detect a very complex molecule that might be present in fish tissue at extremely low amounts and still be extremely toxic. So it's not an easy ask. And the other problem there is that we need the right chemical standards to compare our sample against, and they're not readily available. They are available now. They're starting to become available, but they're still extremely expensive and hard to come by. So for all those reasons, it can be done. And and if there is a case that's reported in New South Wales to the food safety authorities, it will be followed up on and and if they can get a sample of the fish tissue, they will test it. So I'm definitely going to say if anybody suspects they may have had it and has remainders of the fish that they've eaten, it's always worthwhile saving that uh, because it can be confirmed. But again, it's not a routine method that can easily be done on every single fish as a way to provide some kind of early warning. That would be prohibitively expensive, unfortunately. So I guess the authorities put a weight limit on fish like Spanish mackerel to try and keep people safe. Well, that's right. So we've got to rely on other types of mechanisms to keep people safe. For example, deciding that fish from certain regions can't be sold because there's too high a risk or certain fish species can't be sold because there's too high a risk or fish over a certain size. There's a number of different options that can be done to try to limit the public health risk. So if people, if they become ill after eating fish and they suspect it's a toxin like ciguatoxin, they can report that and maybe the fish will be able to get tested. Do we have any way of treating them at the moment? I'm not I'm not a specialist in the health side of things, so um, I don't know the latest, but I know that from a few years ago, there's the mannitol treatment that can be administered in the first 72 hours after a suspected poisoning. Other than that, I think it's really just long-term symptom relief. And, um, yeah, I'm, I may have missed some kind of update. No, I think you're right. <laughs> but that's yeah yes that's that's what i've read 
I was just wondering if there was anything I missed that you might have heard about, but it sounds like mm. not a lot of progress there at the moment. Well, it's really unfortunate that it is more or less a ne neglected tropical disease, ciguatera. So as in a, a disease that primarily impacts people in small island developing nations, particularly in the Pacific, but also the Caribbean. And, and diseases like that have had an unfortunate long history of being yeah, neglected, not, not researched to a high degree. And for that reason, treatments have been really slow in being developed. And so we're hoping that in years to come that will change. So people should mainly avoid Spanish mackerel <laughs> to avoid getting sick from this? Well, yeah, I mean, there, there are a number in, New, in, in Australia, there are a number of different fish species that could be potentially carriers. And they tend to be, yeah, Spanish mackerel is one along the East Coast. But then on the other hand, it's also, you know, it's obviously not the majority of Spanish mackerel. And it's it's going to be somewhat unlucky to, to be that, you know, the, the Spanish mackerel that happens to carry the toxins. So our research at the moment is to try to find a more solid basis for that is to try to look at what are the factors that make some fish more likely to be toxic than other fish and can we establish those factors in a kind of a more solid, a small solid ground for recommending, for health recommendations and, and to give a bit more certainty to the industry as well. So that's part of my research at the moment. So I probably, it's probably too early to say something like that. And the other problem with Cigraterra, of course, is that in different countries, it's going, the, the actual triggers are slightly different to one another. So in terms of the particular fish species that might be more likely to have Cigraterra are different in other countries to the ones that you might, might be potential carriers in the east coast of Australia. So it's sort of the, the, the kind of problem whereby it's hard to give a blanket response. And, and I, I'd just be wary of eating reef fish in particular across the Pacific. And if it were me, I'd be looking up um, particular fish species depending on where I was. And perhaps in certain, certain Pacific countries, just sticking to the deeper ocean fish. And of course, in Australia, we also get fish imported from East Asia. And that's I, right. they have different rules to us. Yes, that's right. Although if a fish is imported into Australia, they do have to follow the Australian rules. So I think that that's not necessarily uh, a problem. And, and to my knowledge, at least, there are not great numbers of, like, for example, live reef fish is not a huge import industry into Australia as it has been into some other countries. For example, Hong Kong used to have a huge live reef fish import industry from Kiribati in particular. And then that more or less shut down due to a large number of Sigma cases in Hong Kong at a certain period of time. So, yeah, so that sort of shows you the perils of not having a very strong food safety detection on your imported fish. But in Australia, we're quite lucky that we do have quite strict food safety rules and we take it pretty seriously. Well, yes, <laughs> that, that's, a, that's a very good thing. To so the limits of our knowledge. To the <laughs> limits of our knowledge, which you're expanding. 
Yeah, but yeah, that's the aim. <laughs> I think that we, we really have a lot to learn is the basics there in terms of both the diversity of the actual Gambia species that are present in not just Australia, but all around the Pacific. I think we, we still have a fairly limited understanding of that. And also the pathways to toxicity. We, we kind of know the outline of them. We know how they should work in theory. But we've really at the beginning of our research in this field in Australia and even around the world. And, and, and to believe it or not, we're actually ahead of the game in Australia and the Pacific compared to, for example, the Indian Ocean or the Caribbean, where they still don't even really understand the toxin pathways because it turns out that the actual Caribbean ciguatoxins are different to our Pacific ciguatoxins. And they don't know which dinoflagellate produces that or how, what the pathway is. So as much as we still have to learn in Australia, we're a bit ahead in terms of we at least understand how, how it should work. And I think give us another 10 years and we'll have a much, much better approach to this and hopefully a rapid detection tool as well. Well, Professor Shauna Murray, thank you very much. Thank you, Ian. That was Professor Shauna Murray from the Faculty of Science at the University of Technology, Sydney, studying the movement of dinoflagellates that make the toxins that cause ciguatera. And that's all from us this week on Diffusion. Are you a scientist, artist, biohacker or maker who'd like to be interviewed about your work? Would your company like to sponsor Diffusion? Send your contributions, opinions, helpful suggestions and donations to science at diffusionradio.com. That's science at diffusionradio.com. Please subscribe to the Diffusion Science Radio channel on youtube.com slash c slash diffusionradio and rate the show on iTunes. Tell your friends. Follow me on Twitter at Ian Wolfe. The news music was Rhinos Theme by Kevin MacLeod of Incompetech.com. I produce Diffusion, which is broadcast around Australia to 28 stations on the community radio network, including Radio Blue Mountains 89.1 FM in New South Wales, 8CCC in Alice Springs and Tennant Creek, 2MVR in Nambucca Valley, 3MBR in the Mallee Border Districts of Victoria and South Australia, City Park Radio 7LTN in Launceston, Tasmania, and... 2XXFM in Canberra. Diffusion is narrowcast on Indigo FM 88 in northeast Victoria. Diffusion is syndicated globally on astronomy.fm. Subscribe to the podcast on the Diffusion website, www.diffusionradio.com. That's www.diffusionradio.com. And check the website for links, photos and videos about this week's show. If you enjoyed the show, you can explore more than a thousand previous episodes archived on diffusionradio.com, where the shows are labelled by keywords so you can focus in on the stories you want to hear. Make a donation through paypal.me slash ianwolf, or join my patrons at patreon.com slash diffusionradio. I'm Ian Wolf. Join us inside your audio device of choice, for more science wondering next week on Diffusion Science Radio. Science is fun. It helps you to learn, to know, and to appreciate. 
When you study science, you may go on field trips. You discover the marvelous interrelationships between all living things. You learn to read the history of the Earth as it is written in rocks and fossils. You find out what makes things tick, everything from a molecule to a living organism. In the study of science is found the most useful and satisfying knowledge of man. Knowledge of his physical world, its past, its present, and its future. And in your moments of relaxation, now and in the years to come, you will find the study of science leading you into fascinating pursuits. Photography. Collecting. Why study science? Study science because you will find in the study of science a richer, more rewarding life.